Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again dive into the world of ethics as we give a crash course in Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter. Beginning with a brief history of the Olympics, we will then move to discuss the management structure behind the Games and what Rule 50 has to do with political protests and athlete compensation. So if you ever wondered why the Olympics were started in the first place, or whether it is right for the IOC to restrict the speech and earnings of its athletes, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to continue our conversation about the intersection of ethics and sports by exploring two very straightforward questions in relation to the Olympic Games. The first is, should athletes be able to use the Olympic Games as a place for political protest? And the second question is, should athletes be allowed to make money directly from participating in the Olympic Games? While these two questions seem to be completely unique from one another, what you will learn is that they are in fact deeply intertwined in Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter. But before we get to that, we need to begin by setting the stage and discussing the Olympics and their history. So going back in time, let's start our conversation at the beginning, the first Olympic Games. Scholars argue a bit about when the first games were actually held, but we know for a fact that in 1884 BC, two kings, King Iphitus of Elysia and King Cleosiphus of Pisa, signed an agreement to stop all wars and declared the sanctuary of Olympia as sacred grounds. Festivals and athletic contests were then held in Olympia to mark the truce and to bring together people from all over Greece. However, we didn't truly start numbering these festivals or what came to be known as the games until 1776 BC. This is when many scholars argue that the Olympics truly began. Scholars, however, do not argue that, quote, at the heart of ancient Olympic games was a religious festival held in a religious sanctuary, a sanctuary put aside to worship the god Zeus. As Greek mythology states, in 1200 BC, Zeus took up residence in Olympia and, quote, marked his ascension by hurling a thunderbolt into the sacred grove from atop Mount Olympias, end quote. Getting back to that first Olympic contest, though, there was only one athletic event that encompassed the whole festival, and that was a 600-foot race that was won by a cook named Carabas. And upon winning the race, Carabas was awarded a victory wreath made from the sacred olive tree of Zeus. This race remained the sole athletic contest for not just the first Olympics, but the first 13. The rest of the festival was marked by painters and orators and musicians and artists all flocking into Olympia to be seen and to make money off the people who had gathered for the festival. As Professor Paul Christensen notes, quote, Anyone who wanted to get a big audience from all over Greece would show up in Olympia. We know there was total chaos for a week because for anyone who wanted to raise their profits, this was the place in time to do it. End quote. 
Now, just like the modern Olympic Games, the ancient Olympics were held once every four years. In 724 BC, the athletic contest expanded from having just a single 600-foot race to include other things like a 1,200-foot race or a 14,000-foot race, a race that was just over two and a half miles long. They had wrestling, they had a pentathlon, boxing, and chariot races. They included equestrian sports amongst other athletic contests as well. And with the expansion in events, the prizes the winners won also started to expand from just an olive wreath to include other things. As the Olympic Museum explains, quote, As well as a crown, the winner received a red woolen ribbon. Although winners did not receive any financial reward, Olympic champions became important figures in their town or city, where they often took on a political role. The glory of the victorious athletes reflected glory to all the inhabitants of his hometown. When he returned from the games, he was given a hero's welcome and received numerous benefits for the rest of his life. To show that he had become famous, the victor had the right to have a statue of himself erected. He could also ask a poet to write verses telling of his feats, end quote. As more events were added and as more prestige was heaped onto the victors, athletic training facilities also began to be built and operated. Quote, at first this happened outdoors, but during the Hellenistic periods, the palestra and the gymnasiums were built. Home to practitioners of wrestling, boxing, and the long jump, the palestra's main feature was a large squared inner courtyard. It was flanked by an extensive bathing system in the adjoining rooms. The gymnasium was an elongated rectangle with space for both the javelin and discus throwers to do their things. Both buildings were centers of intelligence, debate, and learning, with philosophers and teachers taking advantage of the shade and the abundance of young minds. End quote. The ever-increasing size and prestige awarded to the Olympians also brought about an increase in professionalism. We have talked about this in past episodes of the podcast, but remember, a professional is defined as an athlete who receives extrinsic rewards for his or her performance in relation to an athletic performance. The ancient games ran up through Greece, becoming a part of the Roman Empire in 27 BC. At this time, the games were expanded from just Greek athletes to allow anyone from the Roman Empire to compete. And as such, we saw Olympic champions from Egyptians to Spaniards to Syrians to Armenians. The Olympics continued up until 393 AD when the Roman Emperor Theodos I banned the event. This move was based on what the Olympics represented. Remember, the Olympics began as a religious ceremony and were used to pay tribute and to worship their god Zeus. But when Emperor Constantine I converted to Christianity in the early 4th century, the use of the Olympic Games to worship what was deemed a pagan god was in short order. Emperor Thetis I came to power and wanting to do away with all forms of pagan worship and convert all people under his rule to Christianity he decided to outlaw the games entirely. This ban was then ratified by his successor, Theodos II, and the games as we knew them were gone. However, as you know, that's not the end of the story of the Olympics. As History.com reports, the Renaissance in Europe brought about an increased fascination with ancient Greek culture. As a result of this, Europeans began to model many aspects of their lives after the Greeks, including the focus on the holistic or the balanced man. More specifically, they believed in creating Renaissance men, in educating people not just in history and literature and math and the arts, but also educating them in the importance of physical activity. 
They encourage citizens to be active. And many countries even put on informal sporting events and festivals that bore a resemblance to the ancient Olympic Games of the Greece. See things like the Highland Games, also known as the Coswold Olympic Games, the Juez Olympic Scandinavians, the Zappos Olympics. All are examples of societies putting on athletic contests that in many ways mimicked those ancient Greek athletic contests. It wasn't until 1896, though, that the Olympic Games were officially brought back and brought into the modern era. Prior to this, in the mid-1800s in France, an individual named Pierre Freddy, who later became the Baron de Colberton, and thus was called Pierre de Colberton, became consumed with the idea that the reason the French lost the Franco-Prussian War to the Germans was because the German soldiers were in superior shape. As a result, Pierre started to strategize about how to improve the physical condition of his countrymen and began to make plans to reinstitute the ancient Olympic Games. He traveled the world to try to drum up support, speaking to dignitaries in the elite class. And then, in 1894, at a conference dealing with international sport in Paris, he proposed the idea of reviving the Olympic Games. And 79 delegates who were at that conference unanimously voted and approved it. As a result of this vote, the International Olympic Committee was formed to oversee and put on the Games. The first modern Olympic Games were held two years later in Greece in 1896 and featured 280 athletes from 13 nations competing in 43 events. Now, part of the brilliance of Pierre's view of the Games was that instead of holding it at the same place every year as the ancient Greeks did, he wanted to move the games around. He wanted to travel the world. He thought that the best way to get the entire world on board with what he was proposing and to get everyone involved in participating was to move the games from country to country. And he proved to be right, even though those first games were widely viewed as a disaster. In 1900 in Paris, the only city that he could find to host the games in the 1904 games in St. Louis were lacking support on the world stage, but also even from the locals in those cities. It wasn't really until 1924 when we had the first truly successful modern Olympic Games. These games were also held in Paris, and they saw more than 3,000 athletes come to compete, including more than 100 women. As, as a little side note here, women were not allowed to participate in the ancient Olympic Games or in the first Olympic Games in the modern area in 1896. They weren't added in as athletes until 1900. That same year that the first successful games were held in 1924 was also the first year that we had a Winter Olympics. And they continued holding the Winter and Summer Olympics in the same year until 1994 when they began alternating between the two every two years. A few other Olympic firsts that I want to point out to add context to our later discussion is 1936, which was the first games ever to be televised, even though it was only to a limited audience. Then in 1960, we had the first ever games televised to a wider audience when they were televised all across Europe. In 1964, we saw the games televised on the world stage for the first time. In 1948, we saw the first wheelchair athletes compete in what would become the modern-day Paralympic Games. 
Moving forward now to the modern day. The current games consist of 33 summer sports, five of which will be new for the 2020 games in Tokyo. Baseball and softball are coming back to the Olympics. We have karate being added, skateboarding, sports climbing, and surfing also being added. And we have 15 winter sports. It's important to note that some sports have multiple events. So, for example, in the winter games, we have alpine skiing as a sport. But we have multiple events within that. We have the downhill, we have the super G, the giant slalom, the slalom, the super combined, the mixed teams. All of those events fall under this title of alpine skiing, and each of them awards a medal. The last uh, Summer Olympic Games had... Over 10,000 athletes from 206 countries compete, while the last Winter Olympics saw 2,925 athletes from 92 countries compete. So as you can see, we've come a long way since these modern Olympic Games were brought back. Now, important also, not just the history, but also understanding the organizational structure that's in place that helps to put on these games every two years. The games are overseen by three main entities. The International Olympic Committee, which was established, as we said, back in 1894, which we abbreviate and we call the IOC. We have the National Olympic Committees, and we have the International Federations. To keep things simple, I want to talk just a little about each of these and what their job or responsibilities are. So let's begin with the IOC. According to them, the IOC is a not-for-profit independent international organization made up of volunteers that is, quote, the supreme authority of what they call the movement. They shepherd success through a wide range of programs and projects. And on this basis, they ensure the regular celebration of the Olympic Games. They support all affiliated member organizations of the Olympic movement and strongly encourage, by appropriate means, the promotion of Olympic values. Their vision is to, quote, build a better world through sports which they accomplish through three mission statements. The first of which is to ensure the uniqueness and regular celebration of the Olympic Games. The second mission is to put athletes at the heart of the Olympic movement. And the third mission is to promote sport and Olympic values in society with a focus on young people. Then we have the international federations, also called international governing bodies. And these international governing bodies are non-governmental organizations that administer one or several sports at the world level and encompass organizing administration such as sports at national levels. These federations create the rules that govern the sport, and they set the guidelines for how the sport will exist within the Olympics. So, for example, FIFA is the international federation that oversees soccer. They not only put on events like the FIFA World Cup for both the men and the women, but they also promote the game of soccer worldwide. They set the rules for soccer, and they determine how countries go about qualifying for the Olympic Games and what athletes can compete. Just as an example of this, FIFA restricts the age of participants for male soccer in the Olympics to 23 years and younger, with three players allowed to be over that age. In female soccer... They don't restrict the age of participants at all. Other well-known international federations are things like FIBA, which governs basketball. You have the International Tennis Federation, or ITF, which governs tennis. You have the United World Wrestling Federation, which governs the sport of wrestling, and so on and so on. And then finally, 
We have the national governing bodies. These are organizations within each country that oversee the sports. And there's really two parts to these. The first is that each country's National Olympic Committee, whose mission is to develop and promote and protect the Olympic movement in each of their respective country. Then you have the national sport governing bodies, organizations like U.S. Soccer, whose mission is to promote and manage the sport they oversee within their country. They go about preparing athletes for the international competitions like the Olympics or the World Cup, and they provide them training and coaching and also promote the sport as a whole within the country. So we have these three main organizations all working together to make sure that we have individuals participating in these sports and in in their countries, to make sure we have rules and guidelines set in place for which they can participate in these, and to then put on the contests that they can come and play and participate in. So while there are other organizations also involved with putting on the Olympics, these are the three main groups that all work together to provide the games every four years. And while there are issues with the structure and operations of each, today I want to focus just on the IOC and some of the main ethical questions they face. Just a reminder, ethics is a systematic study of values that guide individual decision making. The consequence of this study is the determination of a set of theories or principles that regulates what is right and wrong in a societal setting, such as business or sport. So let's begin the conversation about ethics in the Olympics by breaking down what it is that the Olympics stand for. According to the IOC, the goal of the Olympics is to contribute to building a peaceful and better world by educating youth through sport participation without discrimination of any kind in a spirit of friendship, solidarity, and fair play. To accomplish this goal, which they set in 2011, the IOC laid out seven fundamental principles of Olympicism and something that they called the Olympic movement. The movement itself is defined by six principles, which include promoting sport ethics and fair play, the fight against doping, raising awareness of environmental problems, assistance to development of sports for all, the advancement of women in sport, and most important for our conversation today, the opposition to all forms of commercial exploitation of sport and athletes. Now, to help accomplish these principles and these goals and to govern the sport, the Olympics set into place a set of rules that govern all athletes, that govern all national, international federations, and govern anyone who's associated with the Olympics. And that's where I want to turn our focus for the rest of the podcast, on one specific rule and the question of, is it ethical? And that rule that I want to focus on is Rule 50. Rule 50 states, quote, No form of publicity or propaganda, commercial or otherwise, may appear on persons, on sportswear accessories, or more generally, on any article of clothing or equipment whatsoever worn or used by all competitors, team officials, other team personnel, and all other participants in the Olympic Games, except for the identification, as defined in paragraph 8 below, of a manufacturer of the article or equipment considered, provided that such identification shall not be marked conspicuously for advertising purposes. It goes on to say, any violation of Bylaw 1 and the guidelines adopted here under may result in disqualification of the person or delegation concern. According to the IOC, this rule, Rule 50, was put in place for four main reasons. 
First and foremost, it was adopted to protect the athletes from having to deal with the influences from outside companies and governments. Second, it was put in place to prevent the over-commercialization of the games and to keep Olympic venues free from advertising. Third, it was put in place to prevent the games from becoming a place of protest, or in other words, to prevent the games from being used as a platform for protest, demonstrations, or promotion of political, religious, or racial propaganda. And finally, it was put in place to define the rules for manufacturers' identification and other identifying features on sport uniforms and equipment and to prevent unauthorized commercial, political, religious, or racial propaganda. To put it simply, Rule 50 was put in place to keep the Olympics about sports and to try to keep it free from companies, religions, and governmental influences. They, the IOC, wanted to try to protect Pierre's initial vision, and they wanted to use the Olympics to promote sport, physical activity, and wellness, and not have it be corrupt by the numerous institutions in the world. And I think that most people would agree that this is a noble goal. And if we were to stop the conversation right there, we would be fine. However, the conversation doesn't stop there. It doesn't start with just looking at the intentions of the rules. We as sport managers need to dive deeper and to look at the implications and the outcomes of the rule to truly evaluate what's going on here. And for our podcast today to address the question of if the rule in practice is ethical. So let's go back in history again and talk about why Rule 50 was adopted in the first place. And let's go all the way back to the 1935 Olympic Charter. Just as a note, a new charter is issued before each games, and sometimes there's multiple new charters that come out in between games. And the idea of these charters is to reaffirm the values and the missions of the Olympics, and also to set forth these governing rules for the game as a whole that we've talked about. So in that 1935 charter, it notes that the Olympics were founded based on Pierre's conviction that the power of sport could be utilized for the good of humanity. The charter actually states, quote, They thought quite rightly that these gatherings of young men were one of the best ways to make different classes in a country as well as the units of different civilizations well acquainted with each other and to promote better understanding. Those who followed did their utmost to improve that wonderful manifestation, which is the sporting criterion of races of the world and contribute worthily to bringing together those who take part in the games, end quote. In other words, the Olympics were believed to serve as a place to bring people together, to promote unity, to teach one another about their unique cultures. Fast forward one year after this charter was written to the 1936 Olympics. Now, we talked about 36 a little bit. Remember, I said that 1936 was notable because it was the first games to be televised, though only to a very small audience. The 36 games are also notable because they were held in Berlin and they were hosted by Germany and Adolf Hitler, who used the Olympics as a means to promote not only Germany, but also his own Nazi party. As the United States Holocaust Museum notes, quote, Nazi Germany used the 1936 Olympic Games for propaganda purposes. The Nazis promoted an image of a new, strong, and united Germany while masking the regime's treatment of the Jews and gypsies, as well as Germany's growing militarism. End quote. 
Ironically, the star of the Olympics that year turned out to be Jesse Owens, an African-American who won the 100 and 200 meter races, the long jump, and the 4x100 relay. But despite this, Hitler still sought to use the Olympic Games to show the world Germany, the German people, in all that the Nazi party stood for, and in doing so, promote himself and his own political ideas. And remember, these views were not clearly in line with what the 1935 Olympics said the Olympics were all about. But we didn't have a rule in place then. Rule 50 doesn't come on the books until much later. Now, moving forward in time to 1964 in Tokyo, Japan, the Olympic Charter from that year stated, quote, No discrimination is allowed against any country or person on the grounds of race, religion, or political affiliation. Learning in part from the past in the Olympics that were in Berlin, the Olympic Committee wanted to try to separate itself from the religious practices of the participating members. But despite this statement and this belief, the IOC banned South Africa from the Games for their political affiliation. Remember, in South Africa at this time, they are practicing an apartheid, a segregation of the whites and the blacks that live there. A BBC news story summed it up well from the day. Quote, South Africa has been barred from partaking in the 18th Olympic Games in Tokyo over its refusal to condemn apartheid. The International Olympic Committee announced a decision in Switzerland after South Africa failed to meet an ultimatum to comply with the demands by the 16th of August. The AOC originally withdrew South Africa's invitation to Japan during the Winter Games in Austria. It said that the decision could be overturned only if South Africa renounced racial discrimination in sport and opposed the ban in its own country on competitions between white and black athletes, end quote. While I think everyone would agree that standing up against a government that is practicing radical racial segregation is a good thing, the South African government refused to comply with the IOC's demand to condemn their own practices because they said that the IOC was introducing politics into sports. And I would argue that both sides really have some merit in what they're saying here. The IOC, wanting to avoid the negative press that befell them in 1936 Berlin Games, uh, I didn't mention it before, but before the Games, many nations actually talked about boycotting because of the Nazis. However, no one actually followed through with it. So the IOC, wanting to avoid all this negative press, felt like they had to do something on the issue of South Africa and the apartheid, and so they issued a ban against them to try to make sure that other countries wouldn't refuse to come to participate because South Africa was there. On the other hand, as it said in the charter itself, the Olympics were supposed to be free from political judgment. And not allowing a country to participate because of their political practice is just the opposite of that freedom. So while the judgment might be correct, especially looking back on it all these years later, that is, It's 100% accurate to fight against a country that does not treat all citizens equal. It does draw a line in the sand and that makes the IOC out to be an organization that is going against its own ideals and, and actually passing political judgment when they say that they are not going to. And that slippery slope really came to a head in the next Olympics in 1968 in Mexico City. Interestingly, in the 1968 charter... It directly references politics and arguably does so based on what was seen in 1936 and in 1964. 
this 68 charter says, quote, The Olympics were not revived merely to give contestants a chance to win medals and break records, not to entertain the public, nor to provide the participants a stepping stone to a career in professional sports, nor certainly to demonstrate the superiority of one political system over another. Pierre's idea was that the Olympics would bring attention of the world to the fact that a national program of physical training and competitive sport will not only develop stronger and healthier boys and girls, but also, and perhaps more important, would make better and happier citizens through character building that follows participation, end quote. It goes on to say that, quote, the Olympic Committee will refrain from affairs of political and commercial nature, that this Olympic Committee is and must remain completely independent and autonomous and must resist all political, religious, or commercial pressures and pledges to conform to the rules and regulations of the International Olympic Committee, end quote. With all this laid out in the charter, it would appear that the Olympics and the U.S. teams had little choice but to kick out two African-American athletes who chose to use the medal ceremony as a way to protest racial injustice in America. Now, many of you might not know what I'm referring to, but I'm sure if I described the image or showed it to you, you would know exactly what the protest was. If I showed you a picture of Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the medal stand, with gloved hands raised in a fist above their heads in protest of how the United States treat African Americans, you would know exactly what is going on. Well, we look at and celebrate what they're doing now. At the time, they were shunned. As History.com notes, quote, As the American athletes raised their fists, the stadium hushed then burst into racist sneers and angry insults. Smith and Carlos were rushed from the stadium, suspended by the U.S. team, and kicked out of the Olympic Village for turning the medal ceremony into a political statement. They went home to the United States only to face serious backlash, including death threats, end quote. While all these political issues brought action by the IOC and, as some would argue, caused the IOC to become involved in politics, even though their charter kept defining them as apolitical, countries were also using the IOC in the Olympic Games to make political statements as well. In 1956, the Olympics saw the first time an Olympics was boycotted, as countries refused to participate to protest Soviet Union's invasion of Hungary and Britain and France invasion of Suez. Then in 1964, Indonesia and North Korea boycotted the Olympics to protest Japan, who was hosting the Games. And finally, in 1980, the United States, joined by 62 other countries, boycotted the Soviet Union, who hosted the Games in Moscow following the Soviet Union's intervention in Afghanistan in 1979, which then led the Soviet Union returning serve when the Games were hosted in 1984 in L.A., where they boycotted. At the same time, the Olympics are trying to stay out of politics. The IOC is also making changes to their charter to allow professional athletes to compete. Again, going against the initial ideals that were set about in 1894. As we've talked about, from its inception, the modern Olympics were trying to use sport to promote the good that sport and sporting competitions could bring. And as such, Pierre did not want money to infiltrate into the competitions. Athletes had to be amateurs, and they could not accept any prize money or sponsorships in order to be allowed to participate. 
The thought was that money corrupts sports and that only pure athletes were truly amateurs and could take this message that Pierre was trying to promote and bring it to the world. Well, in 1971, the IOC did away with this amateur requirement, and Elizabeth Olsen wrote the following, saying the IOC allowed, quote, athletes to receive compensation for time away from work during training and competition. In addition, athletes were permitted to receive sponsorships from national organizations, sport organizations, and private businesses for the first time. By 1986, professional athletes were given permission by the international federations to compete in each sport of the Olympic Games. For instance, in 1992 Olympics saw the United States allowed to field a basketball team comprised of well-paid NBA stars, also known as the Dream Team, end quote. So even though the IOC decided to allow professional athletes to compete, they still wanted to try to keep the games pure and free from the influence of big business. At the same time, they were worried about the continual use of the Olympics as a means to make political statements. So in 1975, the Olympic Charter adopted a rule for dealing with advertising and propaganda. It would serve as the predecessor for that Rule 50. And the rule stated, quote, Every kind of demonstration or propaganda, whether political, religious, or racial, is forbidden in the Olympic arenas. No publicity whatsoever shall be allowed in the sky above the stadium or other Olympic arenas since this is part of the Olympic sites. Commercial installations and advertising signs shall not be permitted inside the stadium or other sport arenas. No advertising is permitted on equipment used in the Olympic Games, nor on the uniforms or numbers worn by contestants or officials. In fact, nothing may be worn in the uniforms of contestants or any person with an official function except the flag or emblem of the NOC or the OGOG as approved by the IOC. The display of any clothing or equipment such as shoes, skis, handbags, hats, etc., Marked conspicuously for advertising purpose in any Olympic venue, training ground, Olympic village, or fields of competition by participants, whether competitors, coaches, trainers, or anyone else associated with the Olympic team in an official capacity shall normally result in the immediate disqualification or withdrawal of credentials, end quote. The wording of this has evolved over the years until, as we said, in the year 2000, they instituted Rule 50 as we currently see it today. So with all that background, at this point, you might be asking yourself, why did you take us through all this history? And what exactly does this all have to do with ethics? And those are good questions. The history and the rationale behind the decisions that the IOC has made are important to note as we get in to understanding the ethics of what's going on. Because remember, with ethics, some people might take a purely teleological view. That is, they might only care about the outcome in the rule itself. But others will take a deontological view, and they'll look at the actions themselves and the processes of the policy and try to determine if those processes themselves and those decisions are ethical. So going back to the very first question that we asked in regards to Rule 50 and ethics in the Olympics is should athletes use the Olympics as a place for political protest? And should athletes be allowed to make money for participating in the Olympic Games? The first question, I think most people would come to the same conclusion. That the Olympics has clearly stated in its charter over the years, as we've pointed out, 
that the games are to be apolitical and free from propaganda. Therefore, most of you would probably say that athletes should not use the games as a form of protest. And if you're thinking that right now, I completely understand. But does it change your view at all when we bring in the fact that the IOC itself took a political stance in 1964 when they banned South Africa because of the political practice of the apartheid? Or does it change your view at all to note that the countries that have boycotted the games throughout the years have done so as a way of political protest against the host country's political actions and political policies? In other words, is it okay for the IOC and the governments to use the games to make political statements? And if it's okay for them to use the games to make political statements, why is it not okay for the athletes to do the same? The second question I pose, I think, is a lot more controversial. And I would guess that about half of you listening think that the athletes should be able to make money directly from participating in the Olympics, and half of you probably think they shouldn't. But just like the question of protests, the discussion is pretty complicated. Consider this. In 1972, the year after professional athletes were deemed to be acceptable by the IOC, the Olympic Charter stated, quote, The Olympic Games are not for profit. No one is permitted to profit from the Olympic Games. If it were not for the voluntary services given by thousands of men and women who are members of the International Olympic Committee, the International Federations, and the National Olympic Committees, and the National Federations, there would be no Olympic Games. It would be impossible to pay for these services, which are gladly contributed by those who believe in amateur sports. The games rest on this splendid and solid foundation and all are determined by neither individuals, organizations, nor nations shall be permitted to profit from them politically or commercially. That is why the Olympic rules provide that all profits, if any, from the Olympic Games must be paid to the International Olympic Committee and be used for the promotion of the Olympic movement or the development of amateur sport, end quote. And that makes sense, especially when we consider that Rule 50 was put into place to try to protect athletes from the influence of institutions. However, beginning in 1984 with the LA Olympics, this idea that quote-unquote no one was allowed to profit from the games kind of went out the window. It was during these games that the host country was able to generate a profit for hosting the games for the first time. And they did that primarily through selling sponsorship. Now, this has evolved drastically over the years. In the last Olympics, the last Summer Olympics in 2016 in Rio, actually generated $9 billion. 90% of that money, or $8.1 billion, was given back to the National Olympic Committees and the International Federations and the organizing committees for the Olympics. So the idea that these people are just volunteering to put on the Olympics is a little bit of a farce. They actually are making money doing that. Now, a big portion of that $8.1 billion goes on to be used by these organizations in large part to provide training and coaching for the athletes, to provide places for them to have these competitions. But it's only an indirect benefit to the athletes. None of that $8.1 billion that's generated goes to the athletes. They're not receiving any of that money that's made. 
Some of you might be thinking, well, the athletes can sign sponsorship deals and make money that way, or they can be professional athletes and make money that way. Well, a lot of the Olympic sports that are out there, things like track and field, things like swimming, don't generate professional money here in America. You can't be a professional swimmer and go swim in races and get paid large sums of money for that. You can sign sponsorship deals and make money, and that's great. But remember, Rule 50 prohibits the athletes from having any type of logo or markings on their apparel. So they can do commercials and have sponsorships, but they cannot display that sponsorships during the Olympic Games. And let's be honest, for most of these athletes competing, it's only during the Games that we really know who they are. These individuals are not household names or athletes that three years after the games we would even recognize. But during that month of the games, we know them. Their fame is oftentimes at peak during that time. And yet they are greatly restricted by the IOC from capitalizing it. All the while, the IOC and those organizations involved with the Olympics are able to sell sponsorships and able to generate billions of dollars on the back of what the athletes are doing. Now, on the other hand, the IOC would argue that they want to keep the games pure and free from corruption and that allowing big businesses to become overly involved with the athletes would ruin that, just as allowing politics to become a part of the Olympics or protests and propaganda to be a part of the Olympics would ruin the games. And they probably have some validity to this point. But is it a bit hypocritical for them to take that stance when the IOC itself takes home 10% of the revenue that's generated or last Olympics, $900 million? Or when they make a political stance and ban a country, it's okay. But when an athlete does the same thing, they're kicked out of the games. So let me pose these questions again. Should athletes use the Olympics as a place for political protests? And should athletes be allowed to make money for participating in the Olympic Games? We know what the rules state, and hopefully through the podcast today, you gained a little bit more understanding about why the rules are in place to limit athletes' use of advertising and propaganda. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the rules are right or wrong. Rather, it only provides a rationale for what the organization is thinking. But what do you think? Remember, the point of the podcast and the conversation about ethics is not to give you an answer. The point of ethics is to spark a conversation, or in this case, to get you to think not only about what is right or wrong, but to try to get you to go deeper and ascertain why it is that you think the way you do. If you have any thoughts or questions about this topic and about these questions, please check out our page on Instagram at the sport professor. Send us a message and let us know what you think is the right and wrong actions here. Let us know how you feel about rule 50 and what it prohibits athletes from doing. Follow us and stay up to date on our latest podcast and get some behind the scenes about what's coming next. Until next time though, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.